Parables tend to disrupt all of our thinking. Parables have a tendency to take all those things that we think are good or moral or fair and turn it on its head. They're a kind of anti-wisdom in that they critique the sort of popular wisdom of our day. So sometimes as we come to parables, they can be very unsettling, and I think that's the point. So today we have this parable, this story about two sons, the younger that we know as the prodigal son and an older son. Uh, kids that are with me today, how many of you like stories? Yes. Movies are stories. Books are stories. We love stories. We orient our whole lives towards stories. Uh, kids in the room and adults, that's fine. How many of you heard this story called Where the Wild Things Are? Parents, you need to read this book to your kids <laughs> or show them the movie if you prefer. So it looks like I'm going to be doing a little bit of storytelling today because not very many of you kids are familiar with this story. So there's a book, it's been around for a long time, called Where the Wild Things Are, one of my favorite stories. So it's about this boy named Max, and the story tells us that one night, Max made a mischief of one kind, which is a way of saying Max gets in trouble. How many of you have made mischief of one kind or another? Yep, that was a very fast hand, my friend. Good to you for the self-awareness. So Max gets in trouble, and his mom sends him to his room without his supper. And when he gets to his room, he decides that he's going to escape from his mother. He's going to escape from his house, and he's going to go where the wild things are. So Max shows up where the wild things are, and he becomes the king of all the wild things. And when he becomes the king, do you remember what he says to all the wild things? Let the wild rumpus start. What a good line. Let the wild rumpus start. And then the story tells us that Max, this maker of mischief, the king of all the wild things, that he was lonely and that he wanted to be where someone loved him best of all. And then all around, from far away across the world, Max smells good things to eat. So he gives up being king of where the wild things are, and he goes home where he finds his supper waiting for him. And the story tells us it was still hot. How great is this story? So when we hear these kinds of stories, this story like Max and the king of all the wild things, or the story of the prodigal son who returns home, I think that we love to celebrate the fact that they turned back. We love to celebrate the fact that they repented, that they felt bad about the things that they did, that they're sorry, that they admitted they were wrong, and that they returned home. But in one sense, these stories are really tragedies, because none of those things really happened. They return home more or less unchanged. It's not that the son felt so bad for taking advantage of his inheritance. He returned because he was hungry. It's not that Max felt really sorry about making mischief. It's that he was hungry. 
they return unchanged. So these stories for us are really kind of tragedies more than they are anything else. So let's back up a little bit. What do we know about the story of the prodigal son? Here we have a younger brother who goes to his dad and he asks for his cut of the inheritance early. Now we, we don't even have language, modern language in 21st century Western civilization for how absurd this is. You're talking about first century Middle Eastern patriarchal society where the idea of disrespecting the patriarch, disrespecting the father was unheard of in this way. And while it's true that to go and to ask for your inheritance early is a way of saying to the father, you're dead to me, it's also a way of saying to the rest of your family, yeah, I'm kind of out of this gig. And that's a big deal. Because to take your cut of the inheritance and run means that for all of your siblings, they get a smaller cut down the road. So it's not only offensive to the patriarch, to the father, because you're telling him it's like you're dead to me, but it's like you're saying to all your siblings, I'm out and sorry, because you're going to get less of this thing in the end too. So it's an offense to the father. It's a way of separating yourself from the family. And so as we know, the younger brother goes off, he squanders his wealth in what the scriptures call dissolute living. He comes to the complete end of himself. He is hungry, he's tired, and he's broke. So he thinks maybe, just maybe, if I go back with the right speech, locked and loaded, well rehearsed, maybe my father will take me back even if it's just as a hired hand. Here's his speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. But when he shows up back at his father's house, his father sees him from a long way off. He runs all the way out to him, puts a ring, sandals, and robe on him, and the son can't even get through the whole speech. As soon as he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, the father stops him and immediately does everything he can to bestow sonship back on his son. All of a sudden, this beggar is a robe, sandal, ring-wearing son. These are all signs of sonship and dignity and belonging. And now here's what happened. The son had a narrative that he believed about himself. He had a story that he had told himself about his worth and his value and his dignity and the place that he deserves in his father's house. He has decided that he can't be a son anymore, but his father tells a different story, a story about return and reconciliation and redemption. If the story of the prodigal son is about anything, it's a story about learning to become a son again. Now, the younger son has a decision to make in this moment. Whose version of his story is he going to trust? His 
or his father's? Does he choose to believe that he's no longer worthy to be called a son? Or does he choose to believe the story in which he is a robe-wearing son who was dead but is alive, who was lost but is found? It turns out the older brother's in the same situation. He has his own version of his story, and he has to make the same decision. He sees all of this going on, the party is happening in the background, and he is ticked off. So, just like the younger brother, he wants to come and present his case to his dad. Like, what are you doing? Don't you realize what he's done? But more importantly, don't you recognize what I've done? And then we hear a bit of his own bitterness coming through. He says, all these years I've been slaving for you. I never disobeyed your orders, and you never even gave me a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Basically, his case is that all this time I've been playing the good son, I've been here working this whole time, and this other son of yours, he can't even say his name, this other son of yours, you know you are in a place of brokenness and bitterness when you can't even bring yourself to say their name. How many times have we said my ex rather than naming the person? So the premise of the older brother's argument is basically, I have worked all these years for you. So he has a story that he's telling about himself. Now, the younger brother's story is, I am no longer worthy to be your son. The older brother's story is, I am your son because of all this work I've done. I am your son because of all these things I've done for you. The older brother, his story is that I am your good son because of all the good things I've done. I've been busy doing all the good things that a good son is supposed to do. I am worthy because of all I've done. I am not worthy to be your son. I am worthy because of all the things I've done for you. And again, the father comes and offers him another version of his story as well. He hears him out. He hears his son's argument. It's like he's just like, no, 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 come on, come on, come on. I am always with you. And everything I have is yours. The father tells a completely different version of his story. I am always with you. Everything I have is yours. The older brother wants to tell a story about himself that all that he's done, the years that he's worked, the orders he's obeyed, these are the things that qualify him to be a son. But his father simply tells him, you have always been with me. Everything I have is yours. You belong here because of who you are, not what you do. Now, a couple of things. One, I think it's easy to read this story and to assume that the father has been cheap with the older brother. Are you with me? Remember that line, you never gave me so much as a goat to celebrate with. Now, a goat is not much in terms of a celebratory meal. Um, 
I don't know if you've ever spent time around goats. Goats are stupid. They're not smart. They're not big. They don't have any meat on them. So he's not saying, like, here's the fatted calf kind of celebration. Here's the goat celebration. Like, this is not something that we're comparing here. He's like, the fattened calves are for celebrations. The goats, we don't even use to celebrate with them, and you didn't even give me that thing. So the father wasn't cheap. We see this. The older brother could have had whatever he wanted whenever he wanted it. Everything I have is yours. Everything the father owns has always been his, has always belonged to the older brother, including the fattened calves. All he had to do was ask and receive. Second, kids, you can help me with this question. Does this story sound very fair? No. Doesn't sound fair at all. Here's a kid who did all the wrong things, comes home and gets a party. And the guy who did all the good things can't even get the goat. Kids, how many times have you ever received a consequence or someone else got something that you wanted? And what do you tell your parents? That's not fair. And parents, what do we tell our kids when they come to us and say, that's not fair? We say, life's not fair. <laughs> Life isn't fair. Life's not fair. We can hear that as good or bad news. Try to imagine hearing life's not fair as good news. What if the father was never concerned about being fair in the first place? I just don't think he ever set out to be fair. See, I think grace and mercy and generosity, forgiveness, redemption, these things aren't fair. Favor ain't fair, y'all. I love saying that when I find a good parking spot. <laughs> Woo! Favor ain't fair. And we laugh, but it's true. But see, that's the very essence of grace and mercy and generosity and forgiveness and redemption is that they're not fair. And that is good news for us. That's how things work in this father's world. Profound unfairness. How awesome is this? That's good news for you and me, that the father is profoundly unfair. In the father's world, people get what they don't deserve. In the father's world, there are parties thrown for younger brothers who squander their inheritance. And here's why. Because when we are lonely, and we want to be where someone loves us best. When we think we're no longer worthy to be called sons and daughters, or when we think that we haven't been celebrated in proportion to all that we've done, remember, God is telling us, you are always with me, and 
everything I have is yours. Here's where this turns around for us. I think when we encounter stories or parables like the prodigal, we naturally try to locate ourselves in one of the characters. Some of us are sitting here today and we feel like that prodigal son who is unworthy because we've squandered the good gifts that we've been given. Others of us are wrestling with our bitter, bitterness and our judgment because we feel like we've done all the right things and still not gotten what we think we deserve. We try to locate ourselves in these stories. Whether you believe you've made too big of a mess of things, that there's just no way you're worthy of wearing the robe and the sandals and the ring, or if you feel like you need to keep striving to do more, to be better, to check all the boxes. And see, when you just can't do all the things anymore, you can finally open yourself up to the truest thing about you and finally hear those words, you are always with me. See, I think what Jesus is doing in this story is telling a story that's really about trust. Asking us the question, whose story can you trust? Can you trust that this really is who the Father says you are? Whose version will you trust? I think in this way, what we encounter in the gospel is not an announcement of all the terrible things about you, but it's an announcement of who you are in Christ. It's an announcement of your truest self, the most fundamental, deep down in your bones, identity of who you are. And it's good news because it's a massive reminder of who you are, of your worth, that you are a child of God. You are sons and daughters of the divine. Do we still make a mess of things? Of course we do. Is the good news wrapped up in a bunch of bad news about our lives? Has to be. The prodigal son never experiences the good news of the gospel until he comes to the end of himself. The choice that we have to make is to leave that old story behind because when you trust that story, it leads us into all kinds of destructive paths. We call this sin acting in ways that are contrary to our nature as sons and daughters of God. The story you're telling yourself, it deeply shapes how you live in the world. So if you believe deep in your bones that you are unworthy, like you don't belong in the family of God, you start to act in ways that flow out of that distrust. At the same time, if you believe that the universe is cold, dark, and it's a place that's out to get you, you might find yourself kicking and scratching to do whatever it takes to get ahead. What we believe shapes how we act. So if you believe that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has called you sons and daughters, then the more you know who you are, the more you're grounded in your truest self, the more you know what to do. When the Apostle Paul writes to the Ephesians, Ephesians is six chapters long, and he spends the first half of the letter, the first three chapters, he's not telling them what they should be doing or not doing. He spends half the time telling them, reminding them who they are. Listen to this. 
Ephesians 1.1, to the saints who are in Ephesus. 1.3, we have been blessed. 1.4, our Lord Jesus chose us. God destined us for adoption as his children. You are redeemed through his blood and forgiveness. We've received an inheritance making us the family of Christ. You are marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. You were dead through your sin, but you are loved even when we were dead through our trespasses. For what we, for we are what he has made us, created in Christ. In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. You are no longer strangers and aliens. You are citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. And it goes on and on and on. Redeemed, forgiven, blessed, chosen, adopt, marked, loved, even when we were dead in sin. Once far off, but we were brought near. No longer strangers, but citizens with the saints. He is reminding them again and again and again who they are and why they get to be those kinds of people. And he spends three chapters instilling this identity in them. And then he says, so let us live in this way. As human beings, we're not transformed by long lists of who we're not or the things that we're just supposed to do. We may start acting differently, but nothing actually happens in our hearts. There's no transformation that actually takes place. What actually transforms us is this. When we are reminded, when we're told a new, fresh word, when we're told the truth about who we are, and it fills us with a new awareness of our identity. Our friend Max leaves to go where the wild things are because he believed he was a wild thing. His mother tells him, you are a wild thing. And he acts accordingly. But he comes home when he remembers that there's some place where someone loves him best. These kinds of stories tap into us because at some level we know that we're loved. We know that we belong. That like the prodigal, we've just been living out of sync with who we really are. And the good news will always be wrapped up in the bad because it will always include an awareness of, wait, I, I got this story that I've believed about myself that isn't true. And it's causing me to act out in all kinds of ways. The younger son has to let go of the old story to learn to trust the new story. Trust, trust, trust. This is actually true about you. If you can trust, then what you do starts to flow out of who you believe you are. The gospel is the extravagant, unexpected, lavish announcement that everything you've ever searched for is here. That anything you have ever needed done for you has already been accomplished if you would just receive it and believe it to be true. And of course it changes us. It has to change us. 
Because if you've been impacted by this kind of love that draws us near while we were far off, it's going to impact the way that we view the world. It's going to impact the way that we view one another as brothers and sisters. It's going to impact the way that we view the earth, people with differing opinions. Of course it has to change us. This whole story is about identity and our responsibility to remind one another who we are. Again, we come to this moment in our service of grace and peace as a way of reminding each other who we are and who we're to be in the world. So maybe the best gift that these brothers could offer each other, the prodigal and the elder son, maybe the best gift they could give one another is the affirmation of their sonship. Two brothers who live their lives in completely different ways, trying to get the same thing. What if they could have affirmed one another as brothers, as sons, who can wear the robe and the ring and the sandals? But until they can see themselves rightly, they can never see one another rightly. Henry Nouwen, he noted that while we often act like the younger son, selfish and wasteful, and we feel like the older son, self-righteous and judgmental, that what we're actually called to be is like the father, loving and forgiving. Until I read this, I never even considered putting myself in the shoes of the father. But of course, this is where the story leads us that once we've received this kind of redemption and this kind of forgiveness, this kind of belonging and citizenship, we have to, in turn, offer it to someone else. What Nowen suggests is that once we see ourselves rightly, it becomes our responsibility to take on the role of the Father, to tell the truth about those who would be our brothers and our sisters. The truth is that we are all in need of deliverance in some way. But we can come to that truth remembering the identity that God our Father bestows on his people. Remember in Mount Sinai, before God gives his people the Ten Commandments, he tells them, you will be my people. I will take you as my own. I will be your God. So sanctuary, my prayer for us is that we may be a community of people believing and telling the truth about one another. Because when we believe our most fundamental identity is rooted in being ring, sandal, robe-wearing sons and daughters, we can carry that invitation to a world that's telling themselves the wrong story. In the words of Henry Nouwen, I now see that the hands that forgive, console, heal, and offer a festive meal must become my own. Amen.